Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. As a musician, tour is my favorite and least favorite part of the job. You've got long drives, gas station sandwiches, shared hotel bathrooms. But on the good nights, you also get them. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of people collected into one room, feeling the same way at the same time. Sometimes you feel like an entertainer, but sometimes it feels like a rally or like you're at church. I'm not a religious or a spiritual person, but that simultaneity of shared experience is a communion, everybody lit up by the music and by one another. My name is Dessa. The name of the podcast you're attending is Deeply Human, And today we're asking, why do crowds move you? Let the show begin. The first act on the bill is a master of crowd control. And not too modest to tell you all about it. Hi, my name is Saifa Sounds. I'm very famous in New York. Saifa is a live DJ and a stand-up comic and is like 1,000% New York. Listen, I'm an expert name dropper. My first big gig ever was with Little Kim. I worked with everybody, uh, DJ-wise... Hot 97-wise, Jay-Z, I broke Rihanna, I broke Rick Ross, very instrumental in breaking Sean Paul. Saifa's Instagram page is chock full of vintage pics of him cheesing with Kanye and Dave Chappelle, T.I., and Snoop Dogg. He's been in the game a long time. When you perform as a DJ live, can you explain what crowd control is? I have this knack to read the crowd. It's definitely my gift. I go into like this trance where I see the crowd as like colors and pockets of movement. And I'll be DJing for a thousand people and I'll look over to the left and I'll see like a group of 20 not really dancing for whatever reason. And my my honing skills tune into that part because that 20 people not dancing could turn into a virus and spread and make the crowd not, you know, they could make the whole party flop. So when you talk about room reading, you know, and so you're looking for motion, can you give me some of the other indicators? Like um, if you see blue faces, that means people are looking at their screens. You know what I mean? Which means that they're maybe not attending to the show. What else are you looking for besides movement? There's movement. There's body language. There's facial expression. There's a thing where like the quick look at the booth. So you're playing a couple songs and then you play a song that people don't like and you will see some girls that quickly look at the booth like, what do you? what is this? You know what I mean? And that hurts. But Saifa is a consummate pro who knows exactly what to spin to start the party. 
He can calculate the average age of a crowd and then consult the spreadsheet in his head of the song that would have been chart-topping during their high school years. Nostalgia tracks are strong medicine. And he gets on the mic himself to lure the first bodies to the dance floor. There's usually, like, some girls that are ready to party, and they're, like, starting to move early. And I, and I even say, hey, you orange shirt. Like, I got you. You know what I mean? I feel your vibes. I'm doing this for you. And then they, they feel special. And they start opening up. And I'm like, tell your friends to come out. And they come on, come out, you know. And they come out and they start dancing. And then a group of other people are like, yo, don't let them have all the fun. And then other people start coming. You'll see it like the floor start to get filled up. As a comic, Cypher's home base is at the Comedy Cellar in Manhattan. It's a world-famous joint, this little dim basement room that does three or four shows a night. Tickets are cheap, beers are expensive, and people line up down the block to get in. Our guy Seif usually plays the role of the host, greeting the audience and doing little bits in between sets. So I'm the first guy you see, and I have 10 minutes to get that crowd ready for the show. Comedians, as soon as they walk in the building, the first question is like, how's the crowd? How's the crowd? Always, you know? There's a feeling that's gestalt, bigger than the individual people at individual tables. And Seif's job is to prime the crowd When he delivers these people, perfectly prepared to be entertained, comics know it and appreciate it. And they'll give me a look like, oh, this is, this, you got this crowd right. So what makes a good crowd good? Let's pass the mic to Anne Templeton, a lecturer in social psychology at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. She researches what she calls a psychological crowd, a mass of people who have more in common than just sharing the same physical space. So that is where you have a crowd of people who have a sense of connection to each other. They feel like they're part of the same group. Like a concert where everybody knows all the words, or a protest where everyone is marching for the same cause. We're more likely to provide help to people we see as being in the same group as us. We feel closer to them. We're more likely to share resources, whether that's water or a bottle of alcohol or food, with people who are in our group. Multiple psychological crowds can often exist within a single physical one. Think of a sports game where some sections are rocking the home team jerseys and others are rooting for the visitors. Anne says that feeling connected to the people in a psychological crowd changes our behavior, can even change the way we locomote. I did a series of studies start my PhD where we essentially found that when people are in a psychological crowd compared to a physical crowd, They stay in closer proximity with one another and in larger subgroups within the crowd. So what seems to be happening is that group members are trying to stay together with other group members and they'll even reduce their speed and kind of walk further in order to stay together. To research really vast assemblies of people, Anne has studied the Hajj, the trip to Mecca that practicing Muslims are expected to make at least once in their lives. The Hajj is one of the most densely populated crowds I've I've ever seen. Pilgrims, they're really kind of packed together and they can be up to 12 people per square meter, which is so dense that you're actually like lifted up by the crowd. They found that the more people 
felt like they were part of a group, the safer they felt in the crowd. And that actually increased in more dense areas. For people who had lower identification with the crowd, so who didn't feel as much part of the group with the others, we see the opposite effect. So the more dense the area was, the less safe they actually felt. You know what the crowd stands for, you know what the norms are, what the kind of values are of that crowd, and you act within them. So when people are with fellow group members, they feel more empowered to act certain ways they would anyway. So what does that mean exactly? What does it look like to be empowered to do something bold, electrified by the crowd? Let's queue up our next cameo. Hey, I'm Ganzira and I make stuff. I make what some people refer to as art. Ganzir is a street artist who grew up in Cairo, Egypt. He does large-scale murals, sometimes several stories high, and most of it is overtly political. He gained international attention during the Arab Spring in 2011. Ganzir was at a friend's house one day when his Twitter feed blew up with news of a protest on the streets. And one post in particular grabbed his attention. A friend was live broadcasting video from what looked like a very big march headed towards Tahrir Square. I just left, I head out to see what was up, and I just so happened to arrive at exactly that, that moment when kind of that big march, those protesters arrived to the square, and the square was really blocked off by so much riot police. The square was lined with people watching, waiting to find out what would happen when such a surge of marchers met the police lines. A lot of people weren't intending on participating in protests, myself included, and then when the protesters did in fact arrive without kind of words being exchanged or anything, it's just like, okay, they want to make it through. And so they just kept on marching. And then the police, uh, their reaction was to use their sticks and batons and whatever to hit the protesters. And seeing that, witnessing that so, so up close, just prompted people to kind of go crazy, like this is unacceptable. That's when the crowd got big. There was a billboard in the middle of Tahrir Square that advertised the main political party that has been in power for a long time, or was in power up until that point, which is Mubarak's uh, political party. In 2011, Husni Mubarak had been in power for 30 years, heading a regime that many Egyptians were decrying as corrupt and repressive. I felt like, okay, so eventually they're going to crack down on this protest and there'll be no sign of it, you know, so I had spray paint in my backpack. I climbed the billboard and spray painted on the back of it basically what, uh, what everyone was chanting, which was down with Mubarak. When they saw me climb the billboard, they started, like, shouting at me, telling me, like, to come down. And there was definitely the sense of everyone wanted, was very, very keen on the protest being peaceful. So as people started shouting at me, I just sort of gestured with my hands, telling everyone to calm down. It's not what you think. And then I pulled out the spray paint from my backpack. And then as soon as they saw that, then they kind of started like encouraging me like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, spray something. And before I had even completed the sentence, everyone started to like really cheer quite loudly and clap and you could hear it echoing throughout the square. Do you think that this is something that you would have ever done if you weren't in a crowd? No, it was 100% crowd-based, right? It's like myself being moved by the crowd and and literally my arms just being told to to, to write what they were saying. You know what I mean? That's 100%. Like, would never have happened without being in that crowd, for sure. The voices and bodies around him gave Ganzir the nerve to act on a brave impulse. 
He'd been critical of the government before, but in that square, in that moment, he became the mouthpiece of the crowd in a way that he had never previously anticipated or experienced. He had this feeling of total connection, and other people in the crowd seemed to feel it too. People were banding together, helping one another. Police forces, in an attempt to dissolve the assembly, fired tear gas into the crowd. Ganzer had never seen tear gas before, and after the boom of the shot, he says there was a moment of stillness. Then panic. But momentarily, the canister was flying back towards the police. Someone must have picked it up and thrown it by hand. It did feel quite magical in a sense. I think there was just this feeling of complete non-existence of, of the ego, of the self, and it was, it was really the collective us. Individually, like each person is different. You know, each person has different interests, different concerns, different jobs. But then in that moment, in that space, everyone, there was a feeling that like none of that, none of that is really important without dealing with this other thing first for everyone, you know. And I remember just being moved by the various actions that everyone was doing. Selflessness was really just contagious and and it was just sort of, echoing off of each and every single person in the square in that moment. Ganzir eventually left Cairo and moved to the U.S., in part because he was being singled out by Egyptian media outlets sympathetic to the government. In print, online, and on TV, the protesters at Tahrir Square were described as thugs, rioters, and outlaws. In the press, images of big crowds are often accompanied by messages of concern, big Congregations of people are sometimes portrayed as fundamentally criminal or particularly susceptible to base animalistic impulses. Anne Templeton, our crowd expert, says that there's a very specific reason for those associations. Generally, I get the sense that you think that crowds get a bad rap, but like mm. there's been a lot of haterism on crowds. <laughs> well, um, if we. If we can do a quick walk down history lane. So one of the original kind of crowd theorists was Gustave Le Bon. And he was advocating how terrible crowds were during the Paris Commune. For those of you feeling a little rusty on 19th century Parisian history, the Paris Commune was a short-lived revolutionary government led by common people. It was the product of a working-class insurrection in the city, masses of people revolting against French federal rule. And this character, Gustave Le Bon, was not a fan of democracy. He was really promoting this idea that crowds are these irrational, spineless masses that just need to be controlled by a good leader. Anne says a lot of our modern ideas about crowds stem from Le Bon's not-so-thinly-veiled classism. He kind of popularized this notion of crowds, and that persisted and persisted. And if you look at media coverage, even now you see things like stampedes, you see about the irrational mobs, and talk about mob mentality. So they really do get a bad rap. Would he still consider a group of people at the opera a crowd? So crowds in the upper elite, they were absolutely fine. But the working classes who were revolting, no, no, they were irrational. They, they were mindless. Sometimes violence does erupt within a crowd. But Anne says that the majority of people don't exhibit disregard, let alone malice for one another, even in desperate circumstances. If you look at the Manchester Arena attack from the Ariana Grande concert, we saw great examples of people going back in and helping one another. 
In 2017, a suicide bomber detonated an explosive at a concert in Manchester, England, right after the singer Ariana Grande finished her last song. There were over 14,000 people at that show, and 22 of them died. Amid the fear and the confusion right after the blast, crowd members were there for one another. They were performing first aid to each other, they were giving emotional support, they were sharing water, all before emergency services were able to get into the building. The crowd were already performing amazing coordination to support one another, to match up children with their families, for parents to look after kids. Anne recommends that authorities and emergency personnel work with the crowd instead of focusing on gaining control of it. The crowd is often pretty good at taking care of itself. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Did you know that in the UK they call an intermission an interval? I just found out myself. Two countries separated by a common language, man. Okay. This is radio, so we got to be quick about this. You've got, mm, let's say, eight seconds to visit the bathroom, get a refreshment, and return to your seat. And we're all settled back in. Fantastic. From up here on stage, you can see little ripples of motion moving across an audience. Having been a performer myself for most of my adult life, it's still fascinating to me to watch all the varied ways that crowds move. For example, I recently finished a tour opening for a band called Thievery Corporation. Their stuff has big drum beats, sitar, kind of groovy vocals. And during their set, the motion of their audience is so different than what I'm used to seeing at my own gigs that at first it was downright disorienting. Like, as a hip-hop artist, I'm accustomed to staccato gestures, fans with one arm up, beating in time to the music. Whereas this thievery crowd was way, way looser. After our first show together, my bandmate Joshua described it as a kelp forest. This vast sea of fluid, undulating bodies. Sypha Sounds, the very famous in New York crowd whisperer, sees the same thing when he's up there in the DJ booth. Depending on the type of music and the type of party, you will see like, like ocean waves. Synchronized dancing or swaying is usually a great sign for a performer, an indicator that the audience is swept up in the same feeling. But sometimes, movement sweeping through a crowd can be dangerous. Let's welcome our next guest to Center Stage. Will you introduce yourself to me as you would have at a party? Oh, right. Oh, at a party, I would say, hi, I'm Ariana. I do physics and 
you would say, oh, physics. Oh, I was so bad in physics. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> no, but that's what everyone says uh, without realizing I, I also was very, very bad in physics. <laughs> Ariana Bottinelli is an editor of the journal Communications Physics. She's also an applied mathematician with a background in theoretical physics and a passion for crowd movement and behavior. Under certain conditions, the physical forces of crowd movement can overwhelm the people in it. So if you have a little bit of space in front of you and you all want to get to the festival as, as soon as possible, as long as someone takes a little step forward, you will take another step forward. And so at some point, the pressure builds up from the back to the front. Hmm. And in the front, you see people basically start to wobbling left and right. So there starts being some sort of waves into the crowd where people can't really do anything and being transported by the wave. Hmm. And then in that condition, it can happen that like maybe two waves crash or you get smashed into a wall and something like that. And yeah, so that's pretty ugly. Okay, so you focused a lot on crowd density, on like mm -hmm. high density crowds. How many people and how tightly packed do you have to be to be high density? So that is six, seven people per square meters. Mm, six or seven uh, people per square meter. Okay, so for those yeah, of us who don't lot. think in meters, how far <laughs> away am I from the other people? You're super squeezed by these people. Like okay. you wouldn't be able to fit seven person in a square meter unless you have a box around the square meter. Like I'm tight. Like I can tight, smell yeah. other people's wine and stuff. Like I'm I'm being touched. My body is mm -hmm. touched. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The forces at play in these high-density crowds can get intense enough to seriously hurt people. The disaster at the Astroworld Festival in Houston, Texas, was a tragic case in point. And Templeton, you might remember, mentioned that at the Hodge, densities can reach a dozen people per square meter. At the 2015 pilgrimage, more than 2,000 people were killed in what's often called a crowd crush. A crowd crash is basically when the density is so high that people can't move freely anymore. Like sometimes those pressures are so high that people basically, well, they, they are compressed by the crowd until your lungs can't expand anymore and you, and you choke to death in the middle of the crowd. It's, it's quite horrible. Even if nobody's pushing, nobody's trying to harm anybody, the pressure can build. It's just a byproduct of the crowd itself, compressed way, way too tightly. The point is, when it's too dense, it's too late. These super tightly packed crowds also increase risk of trampling. To try to avoid these dangers, people like Ariana study the mechanics of dense crowds, striving to understand the precise manner in which human bodies cram together. As it turns out, some of the answers to their questions might be found in grain silos. Let me explain. Farmers, after harvesting their grain, store it in silos. Retrieving this grain later, however, sometimes proves hazardous. Like if you open the silo from the bottom trying to take out those grains, then you have those like large-scale reactions. The grain in the silos can shift compact and create pressure waves that get crazy intense. And it can create so much pressure that it basically breaks the silo. Blows my mind. I had no idea. So in some ways, like, filling a stadium with people was compared to filling a silo with grain to make sure that we don't smash the people or explode the silo. <laughs> yeah, in a nutshell. <laughs> 
Researchers have also discovered some useful mathematical parallels in studying coffee beans. For example, in answering questions about evacuation planning. What is the optimal size of a door in order for the evacuation to be fast as possible? Because like, as with coffee beans, like they can clog and people can clog. And they found out that you can have an obstacle. If you put an obstacle in, a, in the right place in front of a door, actually people have, are forced to alternate. Counterintuitively, placing a carefully designed impediment in the path of a crowd can keep foot traffic flowing, preventing people from clogging exits. And even if you're not designing evacuation routes, here's a bit of news you can use from a high-density crowd researcher. Think about how difficult it can be to move through a packed concert, trying to get out of the throng in the center of the floor to go to the bathroom or make your way to coat check. It involves a lot of mumbled apologies, the risk of sloshing beer on somebody's new kicks, and a lot of low-key body checking. But there is a solution. If everyone is facing the stage, for example, and you want to get out, you want to move diagonally towards the stage. To extract yourself from the crowd, make your way towards one of the sidewalls while also moving forward towards the stage a bit. Boom. First in line at the restroom. Look at you. Look at you. Even though much of Ariana's research has focused on crowd worst-case scenarios, let the record show she's not always all serious. I've been in a few mosh pits, yeah, okay. She also talks real casually about some concert phenomenon called the wall of death. Like, it's people running around because at some point they decide that it's cool to run around or the wall of death. Have you ever seen anything oh, like that? excuse me, I have no idea what you're talking about. At some point, someone screams, wall of death, or whatever. And the crowd separates into halves. And it's like, then it becomes like a medieval movie where they start running towards each other and then they crash in the middle, like just smash, like two walls smashing into each other. <laughs> just everybody, sorry, producers <laughs> in the room. Do you guys know what this is? Everybody knows what this is. I am not metal enough to have witnessed a wall of death. But I do absolutely know what it feels like to be moved by something not quite tangible that circulates in a crowded room. It's a mood. It's a buzz. It's like everyone there is plugged into some shared circuit. Take comedy shows, for instance, like the one Saifa hosts. Laughter's contagious. It's a feeling that if the comedian's good or the jokes are good, they shot something into the air and everyone felt it at the exact same time and had an involuntary response. It's like a crowd has emergent properties of its own. There's a positive feedback loop as feelings and movements spread and get amplified. Like, when a good DJ is spinning, the audience performs for itself. The dancers work it, strangers make way for one another, mouth the words at each other. It's like a tiny culture develops there in that one place, a little society that lasts for only one night. And I love when somebody just walks in and they immediately start dancing. Like they dance their way to the dance floor. That's how you know you're killing it. Because like the music is always going to be the music. But what they're feeling when they walk in is the vibe. Is it a collective vibe? Is it a vibe that in part is generated by the crowd? Oh, absolutely. There's no other way to create a vibe in that environment. You know, the music is what they're hearing and the vibe is what they're feeling. I've spent a considerable portion of my life chasing that feeling, that vibe. I tour from city to city with my band, and every night on stage, I try to say the right thing or 
sing the right song or lift my arm into the light at just the right moment so that a room full of strangers will feel, for a while at least, united. Connected enough to let down our defenses and allow ourselves to be moved in one another's company and by one another's company. Okay, this is the end, you guys. A final bow from our guests, Anne Templeton, Ganzier, Ariana Badinelli, and of course, Cypher Sounds. Yo, you got this room hot. I, Dessa, have been your host this evening. Oh, what? <laughs> James! Such a smart aleck in the booth. James, turn the clapping back on. Thank you. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. And it's hosted by me, Dessa. Find me online at Dessa on Instagram and Dessa Darling on Twitter. Get home safe, everybody. Caffeine, nicotine, alcohol. Almost everyone in the world uses some sort of drug. Drink and drugs have played a huge role not only in our social lives, but in civic and sometimes religious life, too. Next time on Deeply Human, I'm asking, why do we use intoxicants?